There was a time that parody films were actually good, and it wasn't even that long ago. The Zucker Brothers and Mel Brooks practically created the genre. Their films are great because they were born from an appreciation of their source material. Airplane is great because, in addition to being a great comedy, it's also, crucially, a really good airplane movie. And Spaceballs is hilarious in part because it's a real science fiction film. The jokes are sharp, smart, and they get the details right. These filmmakers saw comedy as a craft, something to hone and sharpen and use as a way to understand, engage with, and endure the banalities of life. Comedy, at its best, challenges conventional ways of thinking, illuminating a truth that was there all along. That's what makes a laugh so powerful. It's involuntary and explosive. Then Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer came along to set fire to the entire genre. The collateral damage that films like Date Movie meet the Spartans and to a lesser, but no less responsible extent, the entire Scary Movie franchise has done to the genre may be permanent. These types of films and their nihilist brand of reference humor is almost pathologically uninterested in comedy, sacrificing sophistication and a Faustian exchange for the half-attention of theater or cable TV viewers known academically as the lowest common denominator, or to everybody else, idiots. Which is to say that approaching top secret, one really needs to lobotomize the memory of modern spoof films out of themselves first. We're going back to a better time, when the rivers of comedy ring clear and crisp and refreshing before being polluted with common shit and the Kardashians. Top Secret is part spy movie, part war movie, and all comedy. It's a clockwork of visual gags, absurd situations, and real jokes. You have to be smart to make something this dumb, and the jokes, even the ones that are just throwaways, come at you at a rate and showing an amount of care that is positively dizzying. It won't always make you laugh, but it is constantly impressive. And it has an utterly brave performance by Val Kilmer in his very first film. It has to be seen to be believed, and even after seeing it, I'm not sure you'll believe it exists. What does Top Secret say about war? Not very much. I know. It all sounds like some kind of bad movie. On today's Friendly Fire, as we laugh our way through a conversation about Top Secret. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that believes in better download numbers through intimidation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Franica. And I'm John Roderick. Just paraphrasing a joke from the movie. That might be what this episode is. Yeah, well, this every joke in this movie is a paraphrase of a joke from another movie, so... I usually write down like a couple of bullet points that outlines the plot. This is the first show I've ever done with zero zero plot. Yeah, I have there, no notes for the plot. There's zero plot to this movie. First of all, I'm going to lo- lodge a protest. This is not a uh-huh. war movie of any kind. I mean, it's a parody of war movie tropes, some of them, but it's also a parody yeah. of Elvis tropes, uh, beach blanket bingo movie tropes. 
There is a, a pretty good quote from a review of this movie that uh, it has a lack of any clear sense of period, something that may throw viewers who insist on comedic non-essentials like interior logic. <laughs> it's basically a parody of World War II French resistance movies, but along the way it also skewers 50s rock and roll films, 60s beach party movies, and The Blue Lagoon, among other lampoon-worthy source material. <laughs> It has a joke in it at the expense of the Ford Pinto, which is yeah. even in 1984, that would have been, uh, that would have been pretty, pretty scrape on the bottom of the barrel in terms of what, uh, like contemporary right. references. They, well, they, they knew that Ralph Nader was coming to the premiere. So, <laughs> but even that, I mean, that was like, I, the, what was the, the Pinto controversy was 74, maybe 10 years earlier. Yeah. Um, this drove the pedants pretty pretty crazy. There are definitely people in the in the IMDb goof section trying to make the case for this being like set, like, well, it wouldn't be called East Germany if there are Nazis. So, like, it doesn't make sense. It's either 1945 or 1949. Oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, very confused. Oh boy! I mean, that's <clears throat> that was the thing that was the most confusing at the beginning of the movie was just. I was trying to put myself back in 1984, which is not hard to do. I do it every morning. I say, please take mm -hmm. me back to 1984. Please, please, please. I do it every time I do yoga when I do a happy baby pose. Oh, right. You go back to baby pose. I'm trying to relive all of my high school romances that went sour and try and make, <laughs> them, try, try and make them turn out a little better. But <laughs> the idea, I mean, East Germany was one of the baddies of the Cold War. But there's no one in 1984 that would have that would have thought of East Germany as like comedy Nazi Germany, right? But I didn't see this movie in '84, and th and that kind of it shocks me now because I loved Airplane. I loved Airplane so much. It was so it was so just like it informed my whole sensibility. And this was the same guys just a few years later. But I think. I think you. I think I could smell that this was a turd. I no. I mean, Zucker Brother movies were my breast milk growing right? up. Like my entire comedy worldview was informed by their films. Yeah. So, so you're saying you were raised on formula? Oh! Just professional quality. That was a podcasting very, that right was there. Very ben. good humor. <laughs> that, that was good enough that it belongs I, in a Zuckerberg film. I was standing behind the, the joke <laughs> jugs machine and like putting the softball in and then the, the two tires spinning just flung it right at you. Ready to hit. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you guys want to hear? So so that was like the, um, the pedants who... Like there's definitely a kind of pedant who assumes that there must be a logic to something and then... And then says, like, there's a mistake in how they present it mm. like that. Well, that's exactly, uh, like, that's what makes a pedant so insufferable and why you they don't enjoy comedy. I'm afraid that might right. be me. Am I, are you guys, are you guys <laughs> subtweeting me right now? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but this was my favorite. Uh, pedantic quibble with this movie when Dr. Flamand tells Nick that the we that the secret weapon has to be completed by Sunday in indicating September 24th on a calendar Nick replies that's Simchat Torah 
Simchat Torah is a festive Jewish holiday in which the liturgy includes reading the last portion of Deuteronomy, the final book of Moses, and then beginning the cycle again with the book of Genesis. In 1984, Simchat Torah fell on October 18th. Hmm. Further, September 24th hadn't fallen on a Sunday since 1978 and wouldn't again until 1989, and neither of those dates coincide with Simchat Torah. (laughs) Wow. Well done, Pedant. Yeah, I like that that coexisted on a page with somebody who thought that this movie was set in 1945. (laughs) There's a ton of Yiddish jokes in this movie. Well, and what I I don't remember about Air... I mean, Airplane stood so so singularly as a totem of comedy. This movie feels like it's much more derived from Mel Brooks. There's a lot more of just that kind of... I mean, there's there's less... There's less fart and dick jokes than, you know, or fewer fart and dick jokes than I kind of expected once we got rolling. But there's yeah. a lot of... I mean, all that codpiece stuff, all the... And it's just so <laughs> Mel Brooksy, And then the... And then the... The very Jewishness of the... Of the kind of, like, low Yiddish humor. Which Airplane just sort of was... It was... It just sort of... I don't know. It was... It had this glow about it that didn't feel like it was derived from anything. There's a weird kind of uh, multiplication to the comedy where it has where it's related to dialogue in both airplane and in this film. Like you get uh, you get subtitles saying one thing, but the but the foreign language saying something completely different. Right. And if you're lucky, you only get one of those versions. But it's a two percent of a two percenter when it's for the Jewish grandma who happens to be in the room <laughs> overhearing what's being said. Like they're making jokes that no one will ever hear or understand. That's how dense uh, their movies are. It's like Mad Magazine, right? There was always there was always an assumption on the part of the writers that everyone had grown up in the Bronx yeah. in the nineteen thirties. And so we're going to get every little like sort of schmedrick that they threw in there. <laughs> and when really their magazines being read by kids in Iowa who are just like, I mean, I, I grew up with a lexicon of probably 25 Yiddish words because of Mad Magazine. Didn't know what a single one of them meant, <laughs> but I knew how they fit into a, I knew, you know, what, what they meant basically. I called people putzes all the time and. It's yeah. it's like vanity humor where like I don't care if you're laughing I'm laughing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I mean that's basically the premise of Adam and I and my yeah sense of yeah humor. our <laughs> podcast empire is built on that sensibility. I don't care if you're laughing. <laughs> there is a <laughs> well you swearing I'm not swearing. There is one joke and like I was eight when I saw this film for the first time and I got the Pinto joke. Like that's yeah. how much like in the zeitgeist that was. Right. Like and it really it it educated you up in pop culture if you were a kid watching a film like this. You're like, why is that funny? It made you want to do the research to figure it out and then rewatch it. I watched Top Secret, I watched Kentucky Fried Movie, I watched Airplane a hundred times each just to get it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, the idea of educating you up, watching this as an eight-year-old and feeling like they're so, it's pretty sophisticated, right? Like, how do I watch this and and become smart enough to get all these jokes? Like, I understand why the scene playing in reverse is funny, because you don't need to have any other context to, to get why that's great, but... But contextually, within the broader film, you're like, well, if I get this and I don't get that, 
certainly that's for me also. Yeah, yeah. Is the scene in reverse, is the joke that Swedish sounds like a tape being played in reverse? That's funny. It is funny. <laughs> I, I think that there's so much visual humor in this movie, They and it really feels like they're, some of the jokes feel like they're just throwing everything against the wall. Yeah. Some of them are really mm-hmm. clever. You know, the one where they built a huge set to look like they're looking through binoculars and then the cows step over the threshold. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. And, and, yeah. uh, and a and, the train station that's just on a, on a truck that gets driven away. There's so, so many of those, like too, too many to even remember that are that are great. But there are also a lot of them that are just like, like Peter Cushing, Grand Moff Tarkin with yeah. his eye being yeah. super big in the like that's just that's just they I mean they're thinking it up as they go. The joke right? I never got as a kid that I got this time for the very first time because I haven't seen this film since I was in high school, but was was uh, when Streck introduces his two associates and one of them is totally blind and only able to live in the world by touch, and his exact opposite, the guy who only knows what he reads from the New York Post. <laughs> suggesting that he is out of touch completely. <laughs> That's so fucking dumb. Yeah. It's, it's so dumb. It's so New York. It's yeah. so... Yeah, it's just a micro joke. Yeah, it's just a, like a slam on a on a thing that and, you, your and suburban took, kids are just... They took a real world 30 seconds to set it up and pay it off, and then you're on to the next. That, that New York Post joke is definitely something that caught my attention because I've read, I've read like... A thing or two about David Zucker being like a crazy conservative now. Yeah, that's what happens when you get rich, right? Mm. Well, I think he's like a 9-11 conservative, where he's one of those people that like was a pretty liberal person until until that, and then you know concluded that we need to go just bomb the rest of the world into submission or something. I'm not really sure, but I'd never heard that phrase before. A 9-11 conservative, but yeah. but I can see. I can I can picture them in my head, a nine eleven conservative. I know a guy that joined the fire department. Well, they certainly got unfunny after nine eleven. I mean, you look at the <laughs> filmography when they when they came out of the gate, and it's nothing but fucking bangers like Kentucky Fried Movie, Airplane, Police Squad, Top Secret, Ruthless People, The Naked Gun films, and then it starts to slide a little bit with the Hot Shots films. <laughs> <laughs> I love that in your description of their arc, you, you listed all those movies, like eight out of ten of which are steaming piles of nut of just like barf, like fake comedy David barf. David Zucker directed uh, Basketball, which is a hilarious film. As much as he made playing in college? What? But then they started getting into like... That, no, they, you they, could argue that this is related to spoof comedy, but then they started doing scary movie shit, and that's not the same at all. All the movies that you listed, with the exception of Airplane and maybe Airplane 2, are all garbage movies, Adam. You don't like Police Squad? <sighs> no, or, or well, Naked it's not Gun like I films? don't like it. The Naked Gun films. They are classics. I don't know. Maybe I should watch them. You should. I just watched the previews in theaters and was like, not for me. I really liked those movies when I was a kid. If you liked Airplane, Police Squad would be for you. But you guys are kids. You're children. I was I was probably, wa- I don't know what I was watching. Uh, really? I was sitting in a Grown foreign up language John film. Roderick. That's what uh, people call you. Yeah, you know, I was sitting next to a girl in a beret and we were talking about Truffaut. You guys were like, <laughs> yeah. you guys were polishing the, 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 the helmets of your tin soldiers out behind yeah. the barn. 
Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely not an adolescent in any way, John Roderick. <laughs> I was driving around in a Citroën, uh-huh. smoking Galois. <laughs> Sounds like my fantasy. Yeah, First Val Kilmer film. <laughs> He's great. Isn't he? He's handsome. He, he sings. Commits. He actually sings all those songs himself. Yeah. Even though it's wow. we, even though it looks bad because he's lip syncing, but that's his voice. There's never the pained expression of an actor who is embarrassed by what he's doing in this film. No, he's he is having, all in. He feels very lucky to be here. Yeah. That scene where he is actually riding the motorcycle and they give us 30 seconds of um of escape from Stalag 13. Yeah. And it's just like so it's so good and I think he I think he may not do the motorcycle jump but he's he's really riding that motorcycle and yeah. doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah. That is a great shot for shot too. Like they really nail a couple of those a couple of those camera moves where he like he like pulls up and stops and like looks over the horizon. And you know he turns and winks at us but there's no 9-year-old that would have gotten that. I mean that's a great visual gag. And an homage and a, and a good little reference. And you ha- you would have to be a middle-aged person to have gotten that in, in the moment. 1984 Val Kilmer is really good looking. Boy, dreamy. He's pretty good and, looking. And, and strange looking, too. He, he doesn't look like a cover of Teen Magazine good looking. He's, he's exotic. Yeah. He's got very, like, crisp features. Yeah. It was, it was impressive to watch him. And it's understandable how he would have ended up being a, a movie star from this. You know, it's a, a star maker. Looking at his career, I was actually kind of surprised that he didn't... Val Kilmer is a known actor and one that we all think is great and he's in Top Gun and so forth. But he didn't... He could have been a Brad Pitt, right? He could have been like a number one movie star. Yeah. And I don't know. It just might have just been Hollywood twists and turns. He didn't... You know, he he was doing some summer stock theater, and he turned down the Born Identity or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Where it was like <laughs> one miss really gives you a, a left hand turn in your career. Yeah, weird. But but he's great in this. I mean, there's a lot of there's so much funny stuff in this. It's a tragedy that it isn't a funny movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you started by saying that this wasn't a war movie, but I. I would take the war out of that. I mean, it's it's probably less of a movie than most movies that we've mm. seen. But I think it's just as much of a war thing as MASH or any other comedy or comedy-adjacent film we've watched for Friendly Fire. I mean, I, I, it's it's like a science fiction. It's an alternate universe Except there's except there's no like the universe isn't spelled out. It's a it's a universe yeah. that's that's made out of visual gags and comedy bits and so the 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 world they inhabit has to conform to the logic of the of the slapstick not the other way around yeah like the the idea that like okay there are nazis but it's east germany but there's french resistance like if you think any further than the the joke that is on the screen it all just comes crashing down but crucially Unlike Kentucky Fried Movie, which was just made up of a bunch of sketches mashed together into a semi-coherent narrative that I'm using very loosely as Mm -hmm. a word, I feel like they wrote the story first and the joke second for this film. Really? I really think that, I don't think that they were, they 
wrote a bunch of jokes and sight gags and then thought like and then crammed it into a movie after the fact it seems to me that they wrote the they wrote the two sentence synopsis of the movie <laughs> like airplane is a parody of a kind of movie this is a parody of a a couple of kinds whole of, genre, of like three kinds three of kinds movies. of movie that and i think they probably just wrote that down as a sentence and then they never like the whole the whole thing about the about the mine that attaches to submarines was was the plot it's actually the other way around the submarines <laughs> the attached mine to the mine stationary <laughs> i mean that was that's nominally the plot um is this a submarine film is that is that what we need to think of it as oh <laughs> who's the uh who's the rickles in this movie <laughs> the movie is the rickles but we never return to that plot i mean we i guess we're tr- then it becomes an escape movie to get the professor out but the whole idea that they brought val kilmer to east germany as a distraction while they did their maneuver on the nato fleet off the off of gibraltar or whatever i mean that's just never yeah, addressed again we never go back yeah well, but the cow wearing rain boots you see that map a bunch of times you know every time every time you see the the nazis in their in their big office they've got that map with the strait of gibraltar with a bunch of arrows pointing at it but you know the great thing about airplane and kentucky fried movie is that part of what makes it funny is that there are lots of cameos they kind of invented that thing that Leslie Nielsen pers- uh, perfected later, which was the serious dramatic actor who had been in war movies and disaster movies now pari- parodying themselves, right? Playing it straight, but in a in a in the context of a movie that was a joke. And for some reason, in this movie, they other than other than Grand Moff Tarkin and um, astonishingly. Omar Sharif, <laughs> which I, I was, just, I just, I had to pause so and just, great. I had to go walk around the block like oh, Omar Sharif. Patrick, what have they done to you? Other than those two, we don't get a lot of, um, we don't get really any cameos, and I wonder if the movie would have been funnier if, if we'd had. People, you know, if we'd had people coming in and out that were um, that were bringing that that crazy energy, because it fell to all the the character actors who were all great. They all they were all great, but they were parodying types rather than uh, than being I don't know than them being funny themselves, being being funny as soon as they arrived on the screen. Makes me wonder. Uh, Airplane was four years before this film. If there was ever an attempt to cast. Nick Rivers as someone like that rather than an unknown in Val Kilmer or even have Val Kilmer in there. But like the, the names of all the, of all the um, French resistance guys. Yeah. Which is a very Mel Brooks set of jokes. You know, Ben was offended by that. (laughs) You you can't call, you can't call a French man latrine. (laughs) (laughs) And that joke goes on and on. Latrine's one of the main characters in the film. Well, doesn't doesn't latrine show up a little bit later? It's like it's like a slow burn on on that they left out latrine and then and then he shows up. Latrine's the one that I every that was great. every time he he like falls into the scene covered in blood. Yeah, and it seems like he's gonna give his dying words. 
but then he shows, shows up in the next scene doing the same thing. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good joke uh, that takes that takes a half hour to reveal. Yeah, they do the roll call, and every name is funny. Yeah, on down the line. I mean, kind of. <laughs> Chocolate mousse is less funny. But if all of those guys had been had been, you know, William Holden or whatever, would it have been a better yeah. better gag? I don't know. I'm not sure. Trying to trying to punch this up and make it a funnier movie. We don't lately ridicule Nazis like I think we should. I think they should be made fun of. I think their worldview is laughable in almost equal parts to like their their threat, right? I think I think nowadays we take Nazis seriously. I think that's too bad because by elevating their worldview into something that should be considered in a both sides kind of way, like I think that I think that fucks everything up. I think that I think that from the eighties on, like we should have never stopped making fun of Nazis. The counter argument is that by turning them into slapstick clowns, we sort of dishonor the the, the their power and their danger and why not both yeah can we, can I we agree. just do it all <laughs> i'm just trying to have it yeah. all well i think that like they are dangerous and unfortunately ascendantly powerful but like if you take the piss out of them doesn't that worldview become less attractive to people who are explicitly motivated by power tarantino tries to do it in inglorious bastards right he makes there, there are some truly scary Nazis in that movie, and then the rest of them are just dupes mm-hmm. and dopes. He, par- he, he makes them extremely um, ridiculous. He punishes all of them. He does, but 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 some of them he really does. You know, he did, really does make them Nazi scary. Um, right. It's a good question, and I and I wonder like who the audience is. If you're if you're somebody that's um, into Nazi ideology. I don't know if you're going to be listening to our show. Well, no, for sure you are. You're super mad, but, uh, but no, I don't know if you're going to be put off by a bunch of liberal cucks in Hollywood making, uh, making Nazis look dumb. Made me consider like at what point that started to slide in repetition. Like it feels like Nazis were jokes for a long time, a long time. And, when was the last film that like really ridiculed them in the way that they deserve? You know, the, 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 and I think it happened in war movies, the, the post platoon war movie environment. Um, and certainly the saving private Ryan, the Schindler's list era. Uh, those movies really rocked our world because they were so brutal and we hadn't seen that brutality in movies in a, in a long time. I mean, you know, apocalypse now kind of, and deer hunter being a version of a war movie where, where people get really, um, personally injured, but we didn't see the, you know, Nazis, even in something like force 10 from Navarone, you know, Nazis just end up being these guys that get machine gunned, right? They're just sort of like faceless targets. Right. Right. But to go to Schindler's list, they're stormtroopers, right? To, to like post Schindler's list, um, all of a sudden there, there was, I think throughout Hollywood, a feeling that we needed to, we needed to up the realism. I mean, there were a lot of Holocaust movies post Schindler's list, the P, the pianist, 
the I mean there was a revisitation of of all that stuff but but like in a way that was um, newly horrifying haven't you been to class no but it's the end of the semester no was grandpa insulted that we diminished his sacrifice by by lampooning the Germans slash the Nazis I don't think it like, was, was grandpa. that ever a part of it <laughs> no I think I think the the greatest generation loved Nazis being portrayed as clowns because uh-huh. that was their sense of humor yeah no I think it's a I think it's probably a generation X evolution of what our expectations are in terms of you know we're we're too snide we're too ironic we can't we're not going to sit in and watch um uh you know watch dorf the lack a of Nazi. a world unifying quote unquote great war well and we want to see the truth right i mean uh, we don't want to we don't want it uh whitewashed for us we want to see the hard story yeah and the blood and guts yeah we can take it or whatever we need you know we need to watch it it's the it's the whole theory that we need we need to see we need to confront bad things because we need to take our medicine yeah that's it isn't it like like they became less and less of an appetite for a film like this the more seriously we took ourselves right. as a society yeah i think that's true and and partly partly we see it we see a lot of it now like watching a hard movie about the holocaust it feels like we're doing something right it feels like uh like effort yeah and and that we're on the side of just by watching it we're on the side of justice which is hmm. a, which is kind of a self delusion of our of our time you're saying like that it's a, it's almost like virtue virtue self signaling or something like that well, virtue we're, consumption we're witnessing and the right. act of witnessing in in a world where we're not actually lifting a hand or sending any money or whatever but like witnessing becomes a becomes action i mean the the fall of of this type of satire seems to coincide with the entry into the culture of irony and i wonder why that would be like the, like the more ironic like day to day cool shit gets the less of an appetite we have for this stuff yeah, because <clears throat> it feels corny. It feels for it feels for kids. I mean, th- what, so I don't know much about the scary movie era of movies, but there's a different tone to that stuff, right? I mean, it's it's all, all you need to know is that a character gets pinned against the ceiling by a guy coming yeah, because he's, yeah. he's so sexually pent up. Exactly right, and that's the that's the DNA from this or from this kind of like slapsticky stuff but scary movie is also it's not just corny right there's a different is there a different tone to it uh that that would that that would spell out kind of what we're talking about here this transition it's more shallow because it's not it it's not jokes it's recognition comedy i don't know i th- i think i thought scary movie was funny but i i haven't seen it in a, a really long time but it's it's definitely this but also like like this is edgy and we're you know we're not pulling any punches here kind of comedy yeah right. like no sacred cows here yeah that i mean generation x arrived on the scene in the in the late 80s early 90s and our whole our whole tone was like everything sucks and if you like stuff then you suck the only the, the only way to be honest is to be unhappy and to 
um, and to see through, you have to see through everything. Yeah, there's something about the comedy in Top Secret that is very joyful. Yes, it is. It's me- every one of these jokes, you could see them as they were filming the movie, high-fiving each other. And people are getting made fun of and, and like people are getting punched down. It's not just like because it's all positivity comedy. It's it's, it's like from the perspective of, of this joyfulness. It's all that old stuff. I mean, the, you know, like the guy with the blind guy with the white cane falls in a manhole. Yeah. Like that's not fake dog poop. It's the 20th. Yeah, exactly. It's the 20th century, like condensed into a nutshell. That poor guy. Omar that, Sharif. That that scene just went on and on and on. Yeah, that was like rule of 11s. Oh, and the cigar like oh. actually blowing up and... Uh, and actually, and the the exhalation of cigar smoke, yeah, like that. The attention to detail and that, that was, and the, that visual gag was great. That exhalation was brilliant. Yeah, it was so small and so great. Yeah, I mean, Omar Sharif is a is an interesting talk about talk about somebody who didn't take the born identity because he was in Summerstock. Mm. I mean, in nineteen <laughs> in the in the in the early sixties, like he was one of the biggest movie stars, and certainly. Um, the biggest Arab movie star that had ever walked the earth. He, for whatever reason, took... The fucking face on this guy. He took like five or six movies. Because he did he did uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago back to back. and Boom, boom. And then he took a series of movies, all of which looked incredible on paper. He was in these movies with Michael Caine, young Michael Caine. He, every single movie, it was like great director, great cast, great idea. And each one of them was a total bomb. So much a bomb that his career just flatlined to the point that by the 80s, he was taking minor roles in top secret. And And I think he wasn't, he's an example of a cameo in this movie who was not like taking this as a joke. I think he was taking this to pay his electric bill. Omar Sharif was a professional contract bridge player. Like one of the greatest in the world. Yeah. High stakes contract bridge. Awesome. (laughs) But to see him in this movie and to see him get like, get just used, (laughs) just used so badly. It was like, Hey, you want to get paid? Guess what? Exploding cigar. He's just like, oh. Hold really still. I was in Dr. This probably won't hurt much. It tells you a lot about him as a man, though. Yeah. You know, you you can infer a lot about an actor by the choices that he makes with his career. And Omar Sharif, in this point in his career, is willing to light a trick cigar yeah. in his face right. and have it blown up. And I respect the hell out of and it. And he looked like he was having fun. Yeah. You know, he fell in love with Barbara Streisand. He was in Funny Girl. Fell in love with Barbara Streisand. And when word of their affair... Funny Girl era Barbara Streisand, though, also. Well, right, her first film. um, When it was revealed that they had a a romance, the Egyptian government uh, did something like canceled his passport or something, like um, disowned him because he was in a relationship with a Jewish girl. And they were like, you're you're kicked out of Egypt or something. I mean, they let him back. They didn't make an exception for Babs. What the fuck, Egypt? No, well, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to draw a line on Jewish girls, 
Babs is going to be over the line. (laughs) (laughs) Top Secret got better as it went along, which surprised me. The gags, the the little set pieces, the raid on the castle. There's so many ideas, like the idea of their of of Hillary and and Nigel being marooned on some island and building a middle class suburban <laughs> lifestyle for themselves out of coconuts and bamboo. The the entire uh, saloon fight scene that happened underwater. Wow, yeah, there are yeah. a couple of set pieces in this film that are amazing. Yeah, why why do it? Who cares? Yeah, so good, such a cool thing. How do you? actually break a candy bottle on someone's head underwater and have it look like that yeah they 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 got into a fight where they were throwing chairs at each other yeah (laughs) and you know every piece of furniture there was was purpose built to exist underwater break in a certain way and sink instead of float all of that stuff is nuts i don't know if it gets better or it just doesn't let up like the the ideas for stuff to happen don't ever run out. It is a little bit of something to get used to. I hadn't watched a film this joke dense in a while, and I feel like you sort of need to find an equilibrium between yourself right. and the film because that first 10 minutes is so bracing and so fast that I wasn't sure if I was going to like it as much as I used to because it was such a shock to the system. But then you just sort of like relax into the pace of of the comedy and it's totally enjoyable and for 90 minutes like it's it's a super efficient piece of comedy there are four different tones though you know the the whole beginning scene where he is sitting in the fancy restaurant and um that that has a slow pace yeah there aren't a bunch of background gags um it's setting up uh it's setting up kind of the romance it's the key to all the plot that comes later and then there's a big dance sequence kind of the first of the film and that all takes a long time to evolve and isn't especially funny and suggests suggests oh maybe we're in a movie that's going to be that's going to spend time on plot and character development and we're going to see gags here and there Later, later on, it's just every single, every every single shot has three gags in it. Right. Where there's the front gag, there's the back gag, and the side gag, and then the you know, and then the the slow gag. That's that's five gags. <laughs> it does feel like mathy in that way. Like when when you realize that every single scene has the front, back, and both sides gags. Like you're like okay. Like, next time the camera cuts, we're resetting and we're going to find out what the gags are in this scene. It's what made films like this of this era so rewatchable. Yeah, you're, you're, there's Easter eggs everywhere. Yeah. Your continuity person on this movie had to be really on top of her game, right? And some of the gags I didn't get. What was going on all the all the kids in the background with their spaghetti? Or was that chewing gum? I couldn't tell what was going on. Oh, in it was that. the it was the cheese on oh, their pizza. Oh, the cheese on the pizza, right? See, that just was yeah, sure. Now I get it. Lol. It's crazy that there are a lot of dance sequences in a Zucker Brothers film, and in this one, the the spinning of the woman over the head that transitions from real woman to puppet woman to real woman again. 
Nicely sold. Yeah. That was yeah. good. It, 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 that one caught me by surprise too. Yeah. Let me go again and say Val Kilmer is a great dancer. Yeah. I think the thing that makes this movie 1984 more than any other thing is in that scene, he is wearing pleated khaki pants. And the, yeah. the pleats just, they just stun. There's so many pleats. Yeah. He wears so many pleats in this movie. And I mean, they're not egregious pleats. They're not Miami Vice pleats. They're like, they're David Letterman pleats. Sure. But I will, I will tell you guys, I had to rewind this movie like five minutes because I discovered that I'd been shopping for pleated khakis <laughs> on my iPad for a while and I'd missed a bunch of the film. Only you would be inspired to ben make a, like, a oh purchase decision from Top Secret. pleats. <laughs> they're so good. What the hell? I, you don't want to look like Val Kilmer in Top Secret? I... Well, of course I do, just not in the pleats department. You got to have a certain build to wear pleated pants that Val Kilmer has. I think Ben, you could probably pull them off. I just look like the I just look like a regional manager. <laughs> <laughs> We'd get you a uh, a a red polo shirt, tuck it and, in. Uh, tell us about the features on this model of dryer. Yeah. What did Val Kilmer do next after this film? He was in Real Genius. That was his that was the next film after this, and then he did Top Gun. So Real Genius is, a, I think, a hilarious movie. I Love mean, that, that, movie. that is one I saw at the time, and it's weird. when I try. So just to like uh, Gen X locate myself here, 84, I, I would have even heard of Real Genius. I would have been a sophomore in high school. Ben, you would have loved this movie growing up. Real Genius is great. Yeah. Um, and for whatever reason, I... Uh, as a sophomore in high school and knew that Top Secret was a stinker and not for me, but Real Genius was right down the middle, like a like a, a super home run of a movie for me. And Val Kilmer was great in it. 84, 85, 86, Top Secret, Real Genius, Top Gun. It's a hell of a combination. What a run. Quite a run. Someone looked at Val Kilmer and went, I would like to see him shirtless. <laughs> Spinning a, a volleyball on his finger. Yeah, and that was... That was a great gamble, whoever said that. There were a lot of peers, though, of his, Sean Penn, Tom Cruise, who went on to very different careers than Val Kilmer, and I feel like it's, I feel like maybe it is that he played Jim Morrison in The Doors, and the and the awful stink of Jim Morrison gets on everything. It really changed his career, and because after, after that... that he does uh, Thunderheart, Real McCoy, Tombstone, True Mo- True Romance, and then Batman Forever. I feel like he's good in Tombstone. Yeah, he looks good with a mustache. But you know what can you do? You can't re- you can't relive Val Kilmer's life for him. You look at that kisser. You want to see it hanging out of a Batman cowl. He, he was born to play the Batman. <laughs> I don't understand how. How th- Who could Batman be in real life? <laughs> What's his secret identity? I don't understand. Never seen lips like that on anyone. <laughs> the, the, except for maybe the most prominent citizen of our town. <laughs> the, the criteria of casting the Batman, as you say, <laughs> what is it? Because every single person who has played the Batman, I do not think of as being a Batman. Right, think n- name. Well, come on, n- George Clooney was pretty, pretty great. There, there we go. George Clooney, Val Kilmer. Who, who else? What are the Michael other ones? Keaton. Michael Keaton, right? Mr. Christian Mom. Christian Bale. Christian Bale. I guess I can kind of Affleck. Affleck. 
Like, where isn't there an Er Batman? A routine question. That we're still missing? Aren't we still like Daniel Craig turned James Bond into a different thing, a thing we didn't know we needed, and then they squandered it. You just want it to be Adam West. <laughs> Adam West is a, is the Batman. But <laughs> but wouldn't they, shouldn't there be like name name Adam an actor? West is not the knight. No, but that's true. He's not the Dark Knight. But name a name a bad name the name someone who's got enough bad in him to be the bad. The problem with Christian Bale is he's too skinny. Batman needs to be strong like Bull. Batman is strong. Batman is. I mean, it's right there. Man, bat. He's not Bat Boy. It's not Bat Bat Guy. It's Batman. Hell of a paper coming up off of the printer right now. Hot. <laughs> Smell that ink. What does this movie mean to a 1984 person? Like, the Berlin Wall is still up for five years, right? Oh, Berlin Wall come down in '89. Yeah, no, no, for sure it did. I mean, East Germany. There's a there's a joke pretty early on where the uh, the East German women's uh, tennis team or whatever yeah. comes out, and they're all like super big pro wrestler dudes. Yeah. That's communist cheat at the Olympics joke. That's communist cheat. Well, you know, that was um, a rolling joke throughout the 70s and 80s that the Bulgarian women's Olympic team. Yeah. Um, I'll roid it up. Yeah. That was a running a running gag. Um, but then they sing, the, the crowd all stands and sings the East German national anthem, which is like, we live in terror. Uh, hallelujah. I mean, all of this was was absolutely i think in 1984 how we how we tried to laugh about the cold war and the fact that the east germans were portrayed as as nazis in in all but insignia it that would have worked on a 10 year old um because because they were so alien and really east germany more than than any other eastern bloc country other than russia East Germany was the front line of the PR war because of Berlin, because of because that's where the wall was. But also East Germany was the most prosperous of all the Eastern Bloc countries. So they were the ones that had a they were the, if if you could feel threatened at all by um by socialism in that form, it would have been East Germany because they had cars. <laughs> but they spent they spent a lot more energy um, mocking 1943 Germans instead of 1983 Germans. Do you think that that's an artifact of like the Jewishness of the filmmakers? Like that it's it's just much more fun for them to kick Nazis in the junk than it is to kick communists in the junk? I mean, if you think about Stripes, Spies Like Us, I mean, there were a lot of comedy movies uh, that that were taking on Cold War because they're, I mean, the the Soviets and the East Germans and the Bulgarians are just as hilarious if you parody them. Yeah, it's hard to pick a favorite. So I think the yeah, <laughs> so I think the Nazis the the fact that they're made Nazis in this movie is is actually maybe the laziest part of the film. And I think it's a, a re, it's it's a companion to the fact that they wanted the good guys to be French resistance which I think is there's a lot of good comedy material in fake French accents and, and all of those, you know, tropes. So they made the bad guys, Nazis 
just out of I, I feel like that was um, maybe the laziest part of it because they don't really do any funny Nazi jokes. It's a lot of it's a lot of Mel Brooks stuff like like goose stepping and that type of stuff. None of the, none of those jokes land. Uh, whereas if they'd made it if they'd made them East Germans and it had all that kind of strange um, just the strange set dressing of communist era East block the, there, there was a, there was a lot of stuff they could have mined and you could still have the French resistance. I mean, that was, it's a non sequitur anyway. Right. Yeah. Like that's the, the, the thing about having no logic, no, no consistent internal logic to the, to the movie is you can really just do anything. So. Yeah. I, I, the more I think about it, like it might be that, that it was so fun to, to lampoon Nazis that it, that that was the part of the, of making the movie that they, that they interrogated they the least. To do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was, that was the no brainerist part of it, but it ends up kind of now being like a little bit of a snooze. What's your favorite joke in the film? Like, what's the one that got you? <laughs> there, I, I, even as I was watching it, I was like, I can't catalog all these jokes. Yeah. Some of them are great. Some of them are, are just weird. Like when, when Val Kilmer comes up out of the water toward the end and our heroine looks at him and fall in and she realizes like she'll always be in love with him. And all of a sudden her breasts glow from within yeah. <laughs> underneath her sweater. It was just like, what? I mean, it was, it's like, it's like great. But I think as a teenager, that would have been a joke where I went, Oh, okay. That was weird. Similarly. Uh, there's a, there's a scene when the train, uh, departs the station where they look out the window and there's a guy like rushing to catch a tree yeah. that is also speeding along outside the train and it's like I don't even know what the premise of this joke is but it is so funny the the best laugh is the one that gets you when you're alone yeah and I feel like that's the mark of a great comedy film is if you're laughing by yourself at home watching a comedy film I think that's the sign of a great joke the one that, that got me, the tree one was great. That one got me. But uh, is this the potato farm? Yes, I'm Albert Potato. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> got, me, got me out loud for sure. <laughs> I, I thought that the oh, when they are getting into the cow costume. Yes. And they're like, we're going to blend in with the other cows. Yeah. And I'm thinking... Like here, we're gonna see a like a kind of a dumb. Cow is a great actor. That's the thing. I, I I thought that we were gonna we were gonna watch those two guys in a cow costume yeah. try to blend in with the cows. No. And I was like, that's a real <laughs> that's a real dumb thing. And then it's a real cow. Yeah. In boots. That they painted like perfect round circles on. Yeah. And that cow does a great job in this movie. Yeah. Uh, that is a hilarious cow. It really is. And I marveled at that choice. And marveled at that wonderful cow. Really well done. Every time it appeared on screen. And I thought that was that was good. That was good <laughs> filmmaking. Uh, cows do not like wearing anything on their hooves. I didn't know this until I looked into it. And they, they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap this cow's hooves with the, the exterior of a boot, but not the sole. Right. Uh, so that we yeah. can get him comfortable in walking around. Like they never would have been able to do this had the cow been wearing a full pair of boots. 
or two pairs of boots. He even walks funny. Like the cow walks funny wearing the boots. It looks like two guys in a cow costume for how it's walking. And I don't know how you know that if you're a filmmaker without actually trying it out on a cow. It really sold the effect of two people in a cow costume in a really, in what had to be a surprisingly great way to them. And I wonder if when they, I wonder if they, because that cow costume was also a great costume. The head of that costume was really, really realistic looking. I wonder if you, if they were making this movie and they got the cow costume and they had, then they did the two dudes in a cow costume thing. And then they said, what if we got a real cow? (laughs) like how how that joke evolved so much of this film felt pre-written i wonder to what degree uh anyone was encouraged to improvise at all this feels like a very comedically constrained type of film in that way there wasn't a lot of acting funny it was all funny scenarios funny setups right which is a different kind of funny it really is yeah it's not like at no point is it the the Big Lebowski thing where it becomes funnier and funnier as you get to know the characters better and their quirks become like emblematic of a kind of thing or whatever. Uh, it's it's everything is a visual gag. If that German general had been someone that you recognized, but yeah. but that German general had there was nothing funny about him. He was just there to he was just a. Uh, a mannequin he was there to interact with his funny environment right funny environment right the giant phone mm-hmm. um other st- other stuff like that but he didn't bring anything to that yeah and we didn't you know he was there to mug at the at the record when it started playing <laughs> yeah right right and there and there were and basically all the german officers were that none of them ever stepped forward we didn't know who they were and, and they didn't do anything they didn't even, they weren't even the butt of any jokes. They were just like, that's kind of why I feel like the the whole German angle didn't pay off. Do you think you'd be a good skeet surfer? And that too. What the fuck is that? What? They that spent, was very difficult. They spent so much time on that. Yeah. They really, really developed that. Well, they had to get that shot of the, of the lady in the bikini getting up off... Uh, off the ground and there's two giant holes in the yeah that was their the that was their porkies moment try to imagine yeah. producing that scene though we need to cast surfers surfers who are also comfortable shoulder firing rifles <laughs> they have to get out to their surfboard with the rifle and yeah. not get it wet probably right because right? yeah because, because that's a firework you need the smoke thing to go off right yeah and then get up on the board and credibly aim those guns at something. And oh, by the way, we need eight of them. This is a lot of fun to talk about. A lot of weeks we record two episodes uh, in the same week, and it can get real... It can it can become a real bummer when, when they're two just, like, really rough movies. Yeah. And uh, it was nice to watch one that was just, uh, just silly jokes and, and fun. I like watching comedies with you guys, especially. Uh, for every film on Friendly Fire, a custom rating system is given. Top Secret is no different in that regard. It's very different in every other regard. <laughs> 
but what I wanted to uh, what I wanted to get to was the effort that someone will put into for a joke that only lasts a couple of seconds, and I can't think of another movie that spends more time on so little than Top Secret, and there is there are a thousand examples of that in this film, but one in particular I don't think was even really that funny, but I think is emblematic of this feeling throughout the film. It's the giant pigeon statue in the background <laughs> of of the park bench conversation. Like, it's so dumb, and yet really think about this. Someone built a giant pigeon statue. Yeah. This took a week. It had to have taken a hell of a long time. It had to be strong enough to support the weight of three... Uh, suited businessmen dropped on top of it to root around on and then piss on top of before leaving. <laughs> it's the joke itself isn't even that great. No, it's, it's sort of like an anti-comedy joke where like, I sort of, that's funny. Cause it's the opposite of what you would think. And then the, then the statue <laughs> itself poops, right? That's a, the a that's, giant poop. Yeah. That tag at the end is like, yeah, that's funny. But it's not that funny. It's not funny, really. But when we're talking about the proportionality of effort to pay off, this film fucking tries so hard, and it puts in the effort into everything. And that pigeon statue in the background is is what represents that. Like, the amount of effort it took to do that dumb throwaway joke is what the giant phone is that the Nazi picks up. It's the it's the library scene. Uh, the freaking submarine, a life-size yeah, submarine yeah. that crashes through a wall for one dumb gag. It's on screen for less than 30 seconds. And and like super realistic, yeah. like the like the metal looks right. You know, the guy pu- actually comes out of a hatch. There's like water streaming down yeah. the front of the sub when it comes through. Like it looks like it just came out of the water. A thousand studio executives would say this film is not worth the effort at any level. It cost eight million dollars to make and they came in under budget. <laughs> it's incredible. I love this movie. <laughs> Brian Wilson, Mike Love, and Chuck Berry wrote the musical arrangements for the film that Val Kilmer sang and performed in. Like, what? Wow. Val Kilmer sang all his own songs. That wasn't a studio performer. Like, on and on and on, everyone's trying as hard as they can to get a laugh. And I respect the hell out of it. As far as the the rating system goes, it's going to be those giant pigeon statues. Mm. From one to five of those is gonna be how we do this. This is maybe the most emblematic example of a film that can't be compared to any other Friendly Fire film, (laughs) given what we might end up rating it. Because this is four and a half giant pigeon statues. Whoa. It really is. You're insane. And that's why you can't compare this to a uh, golden pack of cigarettes case from a film a couple of films ago. Like, you can't compare these films. You belong in jail for that Maybe. <laughs> it's It's an honest assessment of a film that is really funny and hyper-efficient in its comedy. And it's an example of an era in comedy that's that's gone. Like, they don't make films like this anymore. I think it would be impossible to. <laughs> I, I miss films like this. And I'm glad we got to watch it for Friendly Fire. So there it is. Four and a half... 
giant pigeon statues for me. Wow. Well, <laughs> I... Now, now you guys are going to feel real bad. <laughs> I had never seen this movie before, as far as I can remember. And I don't, I don't have a nostalgic relationship to it. I don't know how well it holds up in that context. Like, I think that there are some things about it that are really great, and there are some jokes that really work still. But, um, but yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like this was scratching an itch for me comedically. Do you feel like someone 10 years younger than us would like this movie, Ben? Because I really wonder if when this episode drops, how many people are going to be like, what the fuck was that? That was just not funny. <laughs> if you're talking about if a 25-year-old? Yeah, I, yeah. I really wonder. I don't know. I mean, I definitely liked Airplane, and I liked like the Zucker Brothers of growing up. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that it's, it's, it's because of that. But um, I don't know. I mean, I... I I enjoyed watching this movie for the show, and I think that we got a a, a good and interesting conversation out of it. But I, um, I you know, don't need to see this movie again. <laughs> I, uh, I think that like it's kind of it's one of those things where if you take a thousand photographs, a couple of them are going to be really tremendous, and there are so many jokes in in, in this movie that uh, one or two of them are, are pretty good. Oof. And uh, That's a faint fucking praise, Ben. <laughs> I'm going to give it two pigeons. I'll give it two and a half pigeons because I don't want to hurt your feelings too bad, Adam. You're right to think that a low rating would hurt my feelings. For some reason, I'm very uh, protective of this movie. <laughs> well, like I say, of the three of us, I was front and center for this time in American life. And um, the movie feels like 1984 to me. Uh, it just has the... It just has the color and shape of 1984, but it was a 1984 that in 1984 I was already rejecting. What it is is a 1980 movie four years too late. A 1980 movie that by 1984 had been sitting on the shelf for four years and had started to have the taste of the can it was in. Um <laughs> There are a lot of gags that you just have to admire where you go, that was imaginative and I didn't see it coming. And I think a lot of the comedy is the surprise. And, and, and there are a lot of them. There are a lot of these gags that are excerpted in the wider world. I never saw this movie, but I definitely saw the cow in boots. I definitely saw the big telephone. You know, there were, there were several, bits from it that made it into the highlight reel of the eighties. And I don't know, I don't know how, um, I don't know what that highlight reel was, but there were, there were some funny things in this, but uh, the movie is just a disaster. It's a, it's a, it's a stove fire. It's like, so it's basically somebody cooking chili in a can and forgetting it's on the stove and going and sitting in the bath until the can catches on fire that is such a specific reference that i've got to believe that you've been through that before it wasn't me it was a girl i was dating i dated a girl in the 90s who set fire to two different apartments she was apartment setting two different times she burned down a friend's apartment felt terrible 
and then was house sitting someone else's apartment and also burned it down. See, that would never happen nowadays because her her rating and review on the app for the first (laughs) incident would make the second impossible. The thing is, when you are friends with someone who has burned down a a, a mutual friend's apartment, devastating them. Yeah. Why would you ask that friend to also... We used to house sit one another's apartments a lot, Everyone which is in the friends group thing. knows the reputation. Yeah, it's like, don't loan your apartment to Laurel. That's just one of the things that you know not... Well, after the second one. Yeah, maybe the idea is like lightning doesn't strike twice. Right. Like, she'll be so careful this time. After she burned down the second one, I wouldn't leave her alone in the kitchen. I'd say, come on, honey. No. Why don't you sit here? Tell, maybe it was a ploy, right? You sit in the living room. Let me... Let me cook right. the chili on the stove. I, I have a friend with a pickup truck, and he always gets asked to help people move. Right, and I feel like like you uh, you let the uh, the grand piano slip off the back of the truck on the highway <laughs> two times. You're never going to get asked to move again. The thing is that apartment setting thing. It also worked because she somehow always seemed to be in between apartments. But this <laughs> movie, like Laurel's house sitting talents this movie is two pigeon statues for effort it's it was fun it it really was fun i'm glad it was on the list i'll 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 go to friendly fire grave defending it as a war movie pastiche but just on its own terms, it doesn't. Are we going to get buried in a in a mass grave marked "Friendly Fire"? <laughs> our friendly fire graves, one after another. No, I think it's. Oh, I no. think our graves are going to be that someone is moving our ashes and they fall off the back of a truck onto the highway. Mm. <laughs> and then, uh, then our fans come in. They they buy one of those adopt a highway signs, right in that stretch. Yeah. Say friendly fire podcast. I don't think I can give it more than two pigeons adam i get it i don't want you to feel bad i want your childhood to be uh, to be validated i don't feel bad i think there's a probably at this moment in time a very narrow audience for a film like this and i just so happen to be in there yeah i mean you 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 always uh you always die on the hill of really bad movies that is me (laughs) it's 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 your character in this show oh it's not acting john (laughs) I promise you. <laughs> hey, Adam, do you have a guy? Yes, I do, Ben. I I was surprised, like, having seen this film as often as I had. I thought I'd have a pretty good idea of who my guy would be before watching this film a couple days ago. But uh, my guy surprised me in that he is Dr. Paul Flamond. Huh. And the no. reason for... This choice is when Nick Rivers meets him for the first time. And speaking of people who uh, were in Batman films, yeah, really, yeah, he plays he plays his Alfred to Val Kilmer's Batman. Oh, I didn't know. Pretty great, that. right? How oh, nice! Doctor Paul uh, starts talking about his his scientific history and all of his great inventions. And uh, when Dr. Paul talks about the desalination machine that he invented and Nick Rivers' reaction was... <laughs> Nick Rivers' reaction having to do with uh, the world never running out of salt again after such an invention really makes it the market. <laughs> really the, good line. The cut back to Dr. Paul and the look on his face 
is one of my favorite moments in the entire film. Just stupefied when confronted <laughs> with Nick Rivers's complete, like, he's he's stunned at how stupid Nick Rivers is in that moment. And that is <laughs> how I felt uh, for many of the jokes in the film, like just stunned at the audacity at how stupid some of the jokes were, but ultimately resigned <laughs> in in my respect for it. So Dr. Paul, uh, in his in his Keenan react to Nick Rivers in that scene, did enough to, to become my guy. Love that moment. My guy was young Nigel in the Blue Lagoon <laughs> sequence. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the Blue Lagoon starring Brooke Shields was a major, major, um, had a major impact on my generation. Uh, And I don't even know if I saw it, but I sure saw it in my dreams. The idea of (laughs) Blue Lagoon, for those who haven't seen it. That movie grew a lot of people up. Yeah, is that a teenage girl and a teenage boy, or maybe preteen even, are shipwrecked together on a desert island and they learn... The whole idea of it being that they are in a natural state, so learn about sexuality. Un- they are in a state of nature. A state of nature. <laughs> they they're not corrupted by um, by uh, lingerie catalogs and uh, violent video games, and they get to slowly explore one another as they blossom and bloom in their natureness. And boy, that well was put. that was a compelling plot for uh, for those of us who were preteens at the time or early teens. I was twelve, and um, the idea of being trapped on a on a desert island with Brooke Shields would it be safe to say <laughs> uh, Barbara Streisand is to Funny Girl as Brooke Shields was to Blue Lagoon? Hmm. Is that a thing that that could be said? Maybe I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. All right. Brooke in, Shields in was, terms of like peak of their powers. Brooke Shields was was three years older than me. Oh, so she was 15 when she made this movie, which was scandalous. Yeah, but I was 12, and it didn't scandalize me. It uh, really set me on a. Set me on a, cor- a course of adventure. Yeah, I mean... My eyes on a new romance. Blue Lagoon. Almost Larry Clarkish. <laughs> in some ways. Anyway, young Nigel, in because they do a creditable job of of doing a, a two-minute Blue, Lago- Blue Lagoon homage. and uh, But young Nigel is so great because he... There's one, there's one shot where they kind of do a, a medium close-up on his face... And he is just covered with acne. <laughs> and, and I feel like it was I feel like it was a joke, like a really, really subtle joke, because it because they don't milk it. Yeah. This movie does have a couple of very subtle jokes in it, which is surprising given given how on the nose so many of them are. Yeah, that one that one for sure I just I, I wanted to celebrate young Nigel. <laughs> I I had a hard time uh, I actually went looking for because older Nigel, that character and that actor, it felt to me like I'd seen him many times. And I was like, who is that guy? I know that guy. And uh, and doing research on him, I mean, he became a character actor 
and has been in a lot of things, but never as that as that guy, right? He didn't, I mean, he was, I guess he was, was he a Doctor Who or something? It turns out that young Nigel went on to have a career in Hollywood as a stuntman. Okay. The actor that played young Nigel. Boy, old Nigel is just a fucking dick in this movie. He's really he, the biggest dick. He's the bad guy. Good guy, John. Ben? All right. I'm going to do something somewhat unconventional with my guy, but I feel like this is... This movie is out, outside our purview enough that I feel at liberty to be as unconventional as this. My guy is that internet pedant that I cited with the, uh, with the Jewish holiday that they noted didn't fall on the appropriate day that, uh, that Dr. Paul Flamand is pointing out. Because that whole, that whole block of text totally ignores the fact that it's a... Acme Lab Equipment nude calendar. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so great. This guy is distracted by the date September 24th on a calendar that has a prominent topless babe holding up lab equipment. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a snap-on tools calendar. Such a classic. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that internet pedant is my guy. Yeah. Wow. There's no possible way we will ever see a movie like this as the next movie on Friendly Fire. But I guess we'll never know until we roll that die. 120-sided die. Let me create my little corral here. Yeah. All right, here we go. Rolling the die. Number 17. One seven all the way down. 17 is an Oliver Stone film Uh-oh. from 2004. Double uh-oh. Set in the Greek Empire. It's Alexander. Wow. Okay. Really? Yeah. How do I not... And Alexander wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. I'm excited to see this. How do I not know this? Colin Farrell is Alexander in this movie. Wow. I do like Colin Farrell. Is this? I actually saw uh, Oliver Stone giving a talk before he made this movie. He was still working on the screenplay. And I, th- I think I did wind up seeing the movie eventually. I don't remember it terribly well, but I remember him saying that it was going to be, it was really going to weird people out because the mores surrounding sexuality in the time of the Greeks were so different from ours that like anybody would fuck anybody. And uh, and then I remember, like, people really scratching their heads about this movie when it came out. So, uh, and I, I'm I'm very curious to see if that factors into what is weird about it. All right, anybody would fuck anybody. Yeah, I mean, I'm paraphrasing something I heard a man who was clearly high on cocaine say more than 20 years ago, but uh, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> He, he did a talk at my film school with two babes up on stage with him that were just there because they were his friends. Whoa. <laughs> they weren't talking or anything. They were just like arm candy. It was really weird. All right. Well, that'll be the next uh, the next episode of the show. Looking forward to it. Me too. We will leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. 
Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.